a very warm welcome back to Mayo Matters. I am Tessa Verrier, your host, and today we are excited to talk with Ebony Rio from La Trobe University. Ebony is a postdoc researcher and physiotherapist who has dedicated her time to understanding tendon pain, rehabilitation, pain perception, and education. During this episode, we touch on tendon rehabilitation protocols, pain perception and education, and research pathways. So strap in and keep up as we bounce through all things tendon related. Well, thanks, Ebony, for joining us. Now, Ebony, you certainly not short of an impressive resume of sporting teams, theatre productions, um, published papers. But for our listeners, give us a snippet of how you actually ended up in research. Well, thank you for having me. My honours supervisor um, was Professor Jill Cook. And after I finished my honours, I said, I don't want to do research. I want to help people. I want to be a physio. (laughs) And she said, if you're a physio, you can help the person in front of you. If you do research, you can help many. And that stayed with me. That was some lovely advice. Either way, I wanted to go off and be a physio, so I did. And I um, worked in Melbourne for a little bit, and then I was lucky enough to go up to the Australian Institute of Sport with Craig Purdom, who they're really good friends, Jill and Purds, but also he's research active. And so I sort of got a little bit of a taste for it again. And then when I came back to Melbourne, um, I met up with Jill because we stayed good friends. And yeah, I just got the, got the research bug. It's a, it's a dangerous bug to get because there's no end to it. <laughs> oh, that's, I don't know whether to be excited about that or depressed, but you're exactly <laughs> right. It's like the washing. I can never cross it off my to-do list. It drives me nuts. <laughs> it's exciting though, because you are right. You get to help um, more than obviously just the person in your room that you really do help people, clinicians who can then transfer to help more. So I really like that approach to look at it. Now, your research covers some pretty forward-moving topics such as virtual reality, um, conditioned pain modulation, and also the importance of pain education. How important do you think the understanding of pain production is to therapists and then also their patients? I'm super biased, but I think it's critical. And I think it's so important because it infiltrates everything we do. So the words that we use, you know, if we're going to use a term like tendonitis, Mm -hmm. someone's understanding of their condition and what underpins their condition is that it's inflammatory. So you can be saying to them on one hand, oh, you need to do exercise. But if they're using terms like tendonitis and we've not addressed that as part of our education, or if we're using terms like tendonitis, then there's a mismatch between what the person thinks they need to do for their condition and what we're promoting. So I think understanding that pain is produced by the brain 100% of the time, is the biology important? Absolutely, because you you manage these conditions differently and you meet the person at their story as David Butler would say but I think it's so important because it it affects how we assess people it affects the language that we use it it gives us the opportunity to empower people actually with education and that's really that's really really important so I think uh, I hope therapists can see the value in really understanding the detail. Yeah, it is really, really important. I think that education portion of therapists, but also of then their clients as well to really help them understand what's happening within their body, 
um, and those those kind of mixed ideas that I want you moving, but you've got inflammation. It's really hard for clients then to process. Um, what do you find being, I guess, um, you were talking about words that you see as being things that can either empower or possibly maybe hold back a client. Are there particular ones that you kind of always get used? Yeah. So the, the first one is that, you know, we've, ha- we've recently had a consensus process in, in uh, tendon research mm-hmm. around a number of different areas, but one of them was the use of the term tendinopathy to to make sure that we are all using it um, because terms like tendonitis are so um, they're actually factually incorrect but also they have implications for people's progression of their exercises mm. but even in terms of um, I think imaging and if we move outside tendons for a second you know we have to be so careful of terms like degenerative and you know major you know some of these words are quite emotive and very you know especially if people don't understand them and they're googling them so I think the words we use and how they're used is is so so important and we know that there's almost no relationship in musculoskeletal pain with imaging you know low back pain tendinopathy they're they're all the same aside from your acute injury like an ACL you know the the link between what we can see on imaging and the production of pain is is completely different so I think we need to make sure we're putting people's um, imaging in context if they're having Mm -hmm. imaging and yeah just really being careful with our words and and making sure we're not putting fear into people you know oh that looks bad that's not helpful (laughs) (laughs) that's the worst one I've ever seen (laughs) yeah so David Butler for example who is amazing and I hope everyone knows who he is he's a you know expert in pain around the world if someone comes to see him with a sprained ankle he's like look at that fantastic swelling you good little self-healer you your body has sent all the right stuff. Look at that. That's brilliant. That is the best, you know, sprained ankle I've ever seen. You know, and best. how good is it? And he's using the biology. Um, so, but he's using it in a way that, you know, is, is, you know, it's a little bit of humor, of course. But even in terms of tendons, you know, we know that tendons, so the patella and the Achilles are capable of adaptation. So rather than, oh, look at that increase in AP diameter. It's like, Look at that increase in AP diameter. You've adapted. Fantastic. You good little self-healer, you. So, you know, we have this ability to use the biology to our advantage, but to actually reassure people rather than just saying, oh, don't worry about your imaging because everyone's worried about their imaging. Someone sent me for imaging. I need to be worried about it until someone gives me a reason not to be. Yeah, absolutely. It's really about perspective and taking that fear out of their injury at the end of the day as well, which is um a really a really hard thing because I feel like prior that imaging and those words have been so associated with those things but now we are really learning not only pain and how it's created but then also all of the other aspects of our treatment and how it can really help together so uh, I think it's a very cool thing to actually be using what is there but just in a more positive sense for those clients Absolutely. Mm. You did say, um, you mentioned just before in terms of um, Achilles tendinopathy, and I know that you have multiple papers on um, Achilles tendinopathy. 
but also other tendons and rehabilitation protocols. What do you see the future of tendon treatment and rehabilitation looking like? And what do you think we are currently missing in this industry? Do you know what I hope the future looks like? I hope that every clinician moves away from wanting a recipe. So we need to be evidence-based but we should never be recipe driven. So to give you an example, what I would like everyone to do is when you get a new piece of research, work out how that builds on your toolkit, work out how that builds on what we've known before. So the, these brilliant research intendants, the Kongsgaard paper, the Bayer paper in patella tendinopathy and Achilles tendinopathy, heavy, slow resistance, fantastic. Do I use their protocol? No, I don't because it's double leg. And what we know in tendinopathy, in unilateral tendinopathy, is that we have asymmetry. So if we do double leg exercises, not only do we not actually correct our asymmetry from a muscle perspective, we actually don't correct it from a brain perspective, which I'll talk about in a sec. So I think... um, what we need to do is, is build on, okay, we know that there's um, asymmetry in these conditions. So what do we learn from that? Well, we need, where possible, unilateral exercise. Um, so we can just keep adding. We don't need to just chuck everything out. We just work out how it fits in. Do we do eccentrics in isolation? No, we do not. But are they critical as part of a rehab program? Of course they are. They, they're in there. They've got to be in there. It's, a, it's one of the key ways that a tendon is used. But do I use the eccentric only, you know, protocol in the paper? No. So what I'd like to provide people in research and, and what people like, you know, Jill and Perds do brilliantly is, is concepts. And that's yeah. hard because people want the answer. You know, they, <laughs> they want to do three lots of 10, you know, they want the answer. But it's so individualised. You have to take someone from their current capacity. This is one of Jill and Sean's great editorials. Their current capacity up to their goal and work out how to get there. So your rehab should consider biomechanics. You know, how much load needs to go through these tendons. It should consider the strength training literature. I hope that everyone would like to consider the neuroscience literature because we now know that there are changes in the way our brain and spinal cord actually control the movement so you know I'm excited about the fact that our future rehabilitation might draw on some of those concepts and bring it all together so I I hope that the future in tendon research um, is less about do you know the question I hate most should people be doing isometrics or eccentrics I hate that question. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if that was on your list of questions. You're lucky if not. <laughs> I hate that question because how do? Why would we think there is one exercise type for your elite athlete that's trying to go to Tokyo next year and your little old lady that <laughs> wants to walk around the block? Why would we think there's going to be one blanket thing mm. that actually addresses the heterogeneity in our patients and and their goals and their past history and their comorbidities and so yes where do I hope we're going away from recipes (laughs) I think that's a really good concept not only for tendon rehabilitation but just treatment in general that um, you know our research and our textbooks all have you know, outcomes and it's really about then adjusting and adapting them to each client and the concepts which 
I think takes a little bit more from a practitioner. You really have to know it and engulf it and then regurgitate it back out in your own version. <laughs> you're so right. And actually just to build on something that you picked up on, you, you're exactly right. In research, we ask questions. So we might do a research study and my question might be for four weeks in season in men with patellar tendinopathy, Okay, so we're already narrowing right down. My question of this group of people might be, you know, are isometric exercises or isotonic exercises um, preferable in terms of pain management or are they both, uh, you know, safe and feasible? I might have a really specific question. So do we extrapolate that out and say, um, you know, that's a rehabilitation program? Absolutely not. So how would that be applied? Well, if you have a young jumping male athlete with patellar tendinopathy and you need in-season management, that's a, that's a pretty good paper in terms of what to apply. If you then get that um, athlete in the off season, that can't be all you do because it's not a rehabilitation program. So people need to remember in research, we ask questions usually that are time-based actually, but Mm -hmm. in clinical practice, our patients come to us goal-based yeah research isn't goal-based yeah very different there in terms of that perspective and a really good point to point out because I know a lot of clinicians use research and essentially look to what is you know the newest kind of data on specific conditions that is about adjusting to the clinic for your regular kind of therapist or clinician that is in a clinic Um, If they are essentially having clients with tendinopathies, where is the best place for them to kind of start looking for that research? What do you you always suggest in terms of if I'm looking to branch out on what is new about that, where do you think is best for them to start? I think um, be really comfortable with resources like Google Scholar or PubMed Um, because the problem with Google is that any idiot with a keyboard can upload (laughs) Thing. and there's just there's there's no there's no vetting so you can always find something that fits your bias you can always find something that's inaccurate and you've got no way of knowing and some of the websites sound really credible you know they they pick names that kind of invoke this um credibility without having it so i'd say if you can always go to a primary data paper that's ideal um particularly what i would say is is look out for people that are just tried and tested, you know, look out for research by, you know, Hans Werver, Robert Jan DeVos, you know, Jill Cook, you know, these people that just have this fantastic track record of doing quality research because that way as they're putting stuff out or their students are putting stuff out, you know, they start to build research groups. You you can have a lot of faith in the quality of how it's done. Um, BJSM is a great journal to keep an eye on because it's very uh very high quality research and they always focus a lot they love tendons and they always focus a lot on clinicians so yeah just just keep an eye out but if you can't find the original source if you found a blog or something just go back and check the original source mary o'keefe um was looking at that in low back pain in the lancet series and basically showed that people were using research no one saw my air quotes then because it's a podcast (laughs) but people were quoting this but to fit their worldview so 
absolute gurus were saying, oh, you know, this, this Lancet low back pain series, you know, recommends, you know, my particular therapy, whatever it was. And it's like, actually, if you go back to the original data, they didn't. So if you find something on a blog, fact check. Yeah, that's really important, especially this World Wide Web where, my gosh, there is so much out there, particularly on pain and treatment. There is just so much out there from so many different people and um, always looking to get, you know, the most accurate and beneficial for clients is super important. Absolutely. And, and just on that, if people are a bit time poor or they don't like uh, consuming research via these papers, because let's be honest, papers are pretty dry and most of us <laughs> just read the abstract. They are. They can be really long. Yep. Mm-hmm. So pod, podcasts are a really great option. You know, yeah. look, for, look for these experts around the world doing, doing these short versions that you can do while you go for a run or, you know, in the car. Oh, absolutely. And they're such an easy thing to do while you're exercising or in the car. Now, with your research, um, out of everything you've done, what has been the most surprising thing that you have found? <laughs> the very first study of my PhD, I was wrong. I, was, <laughs> I had a hypothesis. So that's what you should do in research. You should say, this is what I hypothesize will happen. So I um, recruited young uh, men with patellar tendinopathy. Mm-hmm. And my hypothesis was that I wouldn't see anything going on in their brain that came out wrong, that I wouldn't see anything um, different in their motor cortex and their control of their muscle compared to controls. And the reason why I hypothesized that is that the research that had been conducted using this technique had been conducted on people um, with uh, um, experimental pain Mm. protocols. Mm -hmm. And so people were in pain while they were being tested. And I was like, oh, if you're in pain while you're tested, oh, yeah, we'll see tons of inhibition and stuff. But I was thinking people with patellar tendinopathy while they're sitting there and I'm testing them, they're not in pain. So I hypothesised that I'd see no differences. I was completely wrong. But that's fine because that's research. And also (laughs) that took me on a journey of, um, of looking at neuroscience and well, hang on, does our rehab address these changes that I found and how can we address these changes? So that was the most surprising thing, but it was also kind of fun. (laughs) I like that. That's a good one. Um, And also that you get to learn from that, which is really cool. Is that how you found found your way into virtual reality in terms of, I know that you um, recently have been doing studies with that. Is that how you've kind of made your way from tendons across to that side of town? Actually, I found virtual reality thanks to Daniel Harvey, who's a good friend and a um, a researcher that does a lot in pain. He's part of he was part of Lorimer's group. So, <laughs> Lorimer Mosley, who is amazing and I'm so grateful, was one of my supervisors. He was one of Daniel's supervisors, and we went away on a retreat after a Pain Adelaide um, conference. And over a glass of um, lovely Shiraz, Dan and I were talking and he was telling me about this amazing study that he just finished as part of his PhD, where he was changing the visual gain. So that's the amount you perceive you're moving compared to the real world. And he was able to, he found that people with neck pain could move further before their pain came on by altering their visual input. 
So it's not just information from the neck, right? How cool is that? I was like, oh, I reckon, I reckon we could do that in knees. We should, we should do this in knees, Dan. So anyway, that was my half-baked idea, which then turned into a slightly more baked idea. <laughs> I had some um, fantastic uh, funding through Latrobe. They were very kind to fund a pilot. We found some interesting things where we could change the visual gain of people squatting and get them to squat deeper than they could in the real world. So then I wrote the um, fellowship application for, um, for, my, for my current research. Such a cool space to be going into and to be combining our virtual reality world with the real world and seeing how the brain responds to that is pretty phenomenal and cool to see come together. It's very fun. It's very fun research. And you know, the best part is when I was piloting or even while I was recruiting, people would like put their head in my office and go, oh, do you, do you need anyone? Like, do you need- <laughs> It's like they just want to come and play games and tell our boss they're working. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm a research study. This is what I do. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Uh, that is such a cool thing though. I just think it's really interesting to be branching into that aspect of research and really testing the boundaries of what our brain is, I guess, hypothesizing doing, because I feel like we know so little about how it actually figures itself out some days. And actually, it circles back to your first question about pain, where we now know so much more about pain. You know, we used to think pain was just a measure of damage. Now we know that it's, it's, you know, this information from the body, but it's not just that. It's what we see, it's our memory, it's all of those things and those neurons lighting up at the same time. But excitingly, as a clinician, that actually gives us ways in. You know, that's the stuff we can manipulate. Um, so, yeah, I think it is really exciting. And, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about finding different ways, different tools. That yeah. Nothing works for everybody. So if clinicians have options that they can draw on for different clients or different parts of people's rehabilitation that just gives people an opportunity or access, you know, COVID's been a real example of how, you know, gyms are shut, mm-hmm. you know, you can go for a walk, but, you know, it's a bit boring after you know, the first <laughs> month, you know, if you can, if you can play a game in VR that's therapeutic not just distracting you from your pain what I want to do is develop these opportunities for people to get enough therapeutic load in you know uh, how are they loading anyway I've hijacked the conversation oh no I love that I think it is such a particularly as you said in in you know this times that we are in the moment with COVID that this gives an opportunity where um, clients don't need to be with us physically that we do have other alternatives to be able to help um, therapeutically with their pain um, and what they're doing that we don't if they don't rely on us as a therapist to be providing that and you know these things will never replace therapists and nor should they you know it's it's about how does the therapist um, prescribe this and use it within their toolkit yeah absolutely and it just gives us such a nice broader toolkit to be able to look at So, Ebony, thank you so much for joining us today. We've been so lucky to have you share your knowledge and work related to pain and tendons. I have no doubt our listeners will be watching your space for future work, particularly in virtual reality. Um, But hopefully they're questioning their current knowledge um, to be inspired and learn more about pain and how they can kind of give that across to their clients in a more productive manner. So thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our chat. This episode of Myo Matters is proudly sponsored by Advanced Clinical Education. 
ACE aims to educate, mentor and support health professionals to help you help more people. Check out their upcoming courses at www.advancedclinicaled.com. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in and we hope that our guest today has sparked some excitement about chronic pain and protocols that you can use within your clinic. Don't forget to visit our online store and check out what PD is available to help you grow your knowledge and practice. We look forward to seeing you again in Myo Matters from Myotherapy Australia.